This is an ABC podcast. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. G'day, Emma Field with you for the Victorian Country Hour today. Warwick Long is on ABC Afternoons today, but you've got me until one o'clock this afternoon. Coming up, the Federal Agriculture Minister reveals details on how they plan to transition the closing down of the live sheep export industry. And Australian Dairy Farmers President Rick Gladigo joins us to respond to the Victorian Farmers Federation's concerns about the high fees the state body claims it has to pay to be part of the National Peak Dairy Body. And if you have trouble attracting workers, a HR Ag specialist says it's not just about the pay being offered. And finally, when it comes to training dogs, we'll hear from an eight-year-old who's just sold his working dog for $5,000. He's very natural. He's pretty good on his dock, quiet too. He has a very skinny head. I bet you can't wait to hear from about that, but we'll have all that and more coming up on the show. But first, let's get some rural news. Good afternoon, Annie Brown. Good afternoon, Emma. Thousands of people across the northern rivers in New South Wales displaced by the 2022 catastrophic floods are still living in temporary accommodation. In November, Lyle and Catherine Morrow moved their family out of the farm shed, which had no electricity, and into the pod village in Karaki, while waiting for their new home to be built on their Codrington property. Um, we've been there since about, what, November? And... Um we don't know when we move out. It just depends how long it takes for us to get this house up and going. So we were allowed to stay for two years in the pod, which is great. Yeah, so hopefully it's not a full two years <laughs> before the house is ready. The one we're in is a three-bedroom. They have four bedrooms and then down to, I believe, oh, I think they might be a single-bedroom um, sort of pod. Um, yeah, with three young girls, it's um, <laughs> it can get a bit tight in there at times and, um, and that, but it's just grateful to have somewhere safe it's somewhere you know we can go back and relax uh, when we're not coming back out here trying to get the place up and going again you might be familiar with james blundell's country music but now the musician has turned his attention to a different passion project industrial hemp the hemp contains less than 0.3 percent thc which does not create the high traditionally associated with marijuana cannabis plants on his property near Stanthorpe in southern Queensland, Mr Blundell has hosted a trial of nine different hemp varieties led by AgriFutures and the University of Sydney. I'm absolutely altruistic about the value of the plant. I know how good it is, but I'm ruthless, ruthlessly commercial about it. I can't encourage anybody else to grow it unless I can, until I can tell them what they can make out of it because you can't just chase something because you think it's a good idea. It has to feed the family at some stage of the game. So our plan is to trial again next year and in 2025 I want to utilise the, the results of that trial to uh, plant the two most appropriate um, varieties for each season, for the cold season and the hot season. So this is all, uh, this is all information and, and research that's going to a very specific purpose. A central Tasmanian wool grower is shunning traditional ways of sheep farming. 
Nan Bray's 600 sheep all have tails, they run in one mob and are encouraged to eat weeds. Most wool growers would find her system baffling, but even odder is instead of being sold for slaughter when they are six or seven years old, Miss Bray's sheep get to live out their lives on the farm. I just reached a point one day where I went, you know what, after all the years of shepherding, I was pretty good friends with all of them, and I just went, I don't want to put them on a transport truck anymore. I just want to do it. I'm not going to do it. I don't have to do it. Nobody can make me do it. We don't really know how long-lived sheep are in an actuarial sense. Generally, they get killed and turned into meat pies by age seven or eight. The average age will be about 13, 14 years. That sheep who are healthy, who have their teeth, whose feet are in good shape, the wool does not degrade with age. And lastly, Emma, meet Australia's camel queen. Queensland's Yasmin Brisbane sidelines as an actor and is passionate about teaching people about camels. She shares stories of what life is like as a camel farmer online, with one video featuring Patrick the camel already having 8.3 million views. Sharing her antics online has opened up a whole new world to the young entrepreneur and has brought big growth to the family business. I think it's just a lot of exposure and also just getting people to fall in love with camels and, and understand that, you know, the milk and them as an animal aren't as strange and weird and gross as everyone thinks that they are. <laughs> I really wanted to, like, educate people about camels and show this. It's a really cool life that I live, so I really wanted to show that off. So I started posting last year and then I got to 500,000 followers pretty quickly and all of a sudden it just became this big beast and it's, it's really become a big part of the business and how we run things here. They're so beautiful and they're affectionate and they just, they just like creep into your soul and they're just so divine. I just love being out here with them. And that's what's making rural news. I'm off to go watch some videos of camels. Thanks, Annie. I might join you after the show. I had a great experience of seeing some camels. They weren't in the wild, but there were a couple uh, marching some camels across the Nullarbor when I worked at the Esperance Bureau in Western Australia. Great fun. Uh, You are listening to The Country Hour. My name's Emma Field. If you have a view on what's been said today, and I'm sure many of you might, you can text into the show 0467 842 Now, earlier this week, we heard from the Victorian Farmers Federation President, Emma Germano, who told us they're questioning the membership fees they have to pay to national advocacy groups. Not have to pay, choose to pay, I should say. This includes the $350,000 they pay to peak group Dairy Australian Farmers. President of Australian Dairy Farmers, Rick Gladigo, is here to respond to some of VFF's concerns. Rick Gladigo, welcome to the Country Hour. Thank you, Emma. Um, what do VFF members get for the $350,000 fee that they pay to be part of the ADF? Yes, yeah, so th- thanks for having me on. So, so obviously there's been a fair bit of media this week about the VFF's member payments to ADF. And so I, I'm here to sort of clarify a bit of those issues and, and to cover this and get the record straight a bit. So as a background as to, you know, they're talking about the money the subscription they pay to us is that VFF is one of the six state members of ADF and under the ADF constitution they have to pay subscription fees to ADF and the VFF collects membership levies from the dairy farmers so they collect more members more membership levies from dairy farmers than any of its other commodity groups and so VFF keeps approximately two-thirds of those dairy levies for themselves and, and ADF gets roughly a third so 
But, but how that's calculated is back in 2011, the state members agreed on a figure that would go to be, would be paid to ADF, uh, and then that is broken down into the uh, milk production percentage of each state based off the total milk production in Australia. So obviously, as, as you would know, is that Victoria is the largest dairy-producing state and of, with roughly 64% of national production. So they pay 64% roughly of this, this figure that was agreed to back in 2011. Um, so, of course, it's, it's only natural you'd expect VFF would pay more revenue to ADF than, than any, other, any other states, given that they're over 60%. But, but, what well, is really, that, what, but, just... but what is really important, though, I think, Emma, to say in this is that at the UDV conference back in 2011 then, the Victorian dairy farmers agreed to increase the dairy levy to the VFF to ensure that their levies would cover ADF's fees. And I think that's a very important point that seems to not be mentioned by the VFF, is that the dairy farmers actually agreed to increase their levies to, to pay for ADF's fees. I think you'd agree, though, Rick, a lot has changed since 2011, more than a decade ago. Milk production is now declining. And what you're saying is the way the membership fee is structured, it's it's based on the amount of litres of milk being produced. So effectively, dairy farmer members in the VFF are paying for everyone in the state that may not be a member of the UDF or the VFF. Do you think that's fair? Well, the UDF, as I just stated, the UDV back in 2011, the Victorian dairy farmers agreed that they would pay uh, increase their levy to actually pay for ADF's fees. And, we, and, and on that, like while the fee was set back in 2011, it's only increased by, and the only way we can increase it at ADF uh, is it, inc- it was agreed to increase it by CPI, and that hasn't happened since 2018. So really, you know, we haven't kept increasing the fee, and the only way Victoria will end up paying more is if their percentage of the total milk production... Uh, of Australia, their percentage, Victoria's percentage, actually increases. So, so we've kept the fee actually very stagnant since, or it's been really stagnant since 2018, where we have we haven't increased it at all. So, but you've got to remember, the Victorian dairy farmers agreed to increase the levy they're paying to cover ADF's fees. Now, yes, they're they're paying for everybody, but that's what they've agreed to also do, which you know, we certainly uh, certainly certainly happy that they've, they made that and certainly support it. So, Well, I guess more than a dec- decade on, it sounds like uh, the organisation as a whole at least are questioning that. But I'll just bring up something else that Emma Germano mentioned. Um, she talked about the Australian Dairy Plan, which was done a few years ago, at great expense, I should say, Ooh. yet the recommendations have failed to materialise and appear to have fractured the industry even more. Let's hear what VFF President Emma Germano had and her thoughts on this process. But for all of that conversation to have happened, it was, um, you know, it did create quite a lot of negativity. There was so much resource put into the consultation and going around all the different states around Australia. How do you want dairy advocacy to look? And then largely most people say that there's been no change and that's disappointing. So, you know, what's the the first catalyst for change? Is it us saying, hang on a second, VFF, UDV are not going to pay this huge um, sum of money that might start a conversation in a different manner um, and, and like I said we don't want any guns to any heads but it's certainly we have to have the conversation and we we have to do it across um, Australian advocacy for agriculture. Emma Germano there VFF president. Um, Rick Gladigo is with us on the country out today president of the Australian Dairy Farmers Association. Rick is the Australian Dairy Plan dead in the water? 
Oh, certainly not. By, by far, it's not. I mean, everyone focuses on commitment one, which was the reform, but there's there's five commitments in there that have all been acted acted on. The reform one is a it's a big process, and the, and ADF's not the only player in that game. So, um, and we're still working through that. The Australian Dairy Plan Committee there of the of the four uh, groups are still still meets. We're still working through that, and and reform may happen in in other ways. It, it's it's not going to happen as the JTT report put through, but that doesn't mean that reform is not going to happen in in the industry, and we're certainly working th- working through that currently. But but I think we, look, we've got to get back to, you know, while Emma wants to question why she's paying this money, I think as I've stated, this is why they pay it. But let but let's get back to what ADF has actually achieved. And so if you get back that to the point that ADF is the first point of call in the dairy industry, and as you know, FMD and LSD is big. So we are the first point of call by the Australian government in the effect that even the event that there was an outbreak in LSD or FMD, and this cost of FMD outbreak to dairy could be $6.5 billion over 10 years. We've also ADF established data gene to improve the productivity and profitability of the dairy herd. So in the past five years, that genetic gain for dairy size has increased by 24% under data gene. ADF led the development of the mandatory dairy code of conduct for processes that increased the transparency and competition in milk pricing and confidence in the dairy market. And that's been a big, big one for Victoria being an, an export, um, basically an export state. So uh, of not having, you know, they were certainly the big ones who got hit when, when um, Murray Goldwyn shut down. ADF secured $10 million in energy efficiency grants for dairy farmers. And so that was broken down because of the percentage of milk coming out of Victoria being the largest state. $6 million of that money went to Victorian dairy farmers and it was totally subscribed, which enabled those dairy farmers to upgrade their energy appliances. We brought an end to dollar milk in February 2019 after years of lobbying by ADF. This has provided 22 to $54 million in value to the dairy supply chain. So in the past four years alone... These are just a few examples that we've done. Well, on the dollar we're, milk, we're, I mean, that was driven by but, costs as but, well. So, but 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 this is by 3.6 staff we, of what we achieve. We we run on the smell of an oily rag ourselves. We we really do our budgets uh, and and run fairly lean. And like I said, we're running 3.6. And ADF is the peak dairy industry body, running on 3.6 staff. Okay, uh, Rick Gladigo, what will the ADF do if the VFF chooses to withdraw its membership? Because, like, by your admission, you said they are the biggest contributor to your organisation. What's your What's your plan? Well, as, as I said at the start, um, the agreement there by the six member states is that um, they are required to pay membership subscriptions to ADF if they, uh, you know... Under the Constitution, if they want to operate under the Constitution, if they, uh, you know, it's up, it's up to them, but we keep, sending, we keep sending the invoice. So are you having discussions with them, or if they withdraw, they withdraw, and then you deal with it? Have you got a plan around well, that? Well, there's a process. If they want to withdraw, there's a process of how they go about it. Um, they can't just go, I mean, uh, let, let's put it in, in farmer terms. My grain guy sends me a, a bill for my grain and I go, well, look, I'm not going to pay that. Oh, you've got to come back with a cheaper price than that. I'm not going to pay that. Even though I've already got all the benefits you've delivered, I don't want to pay that anymore. And this is sort of what we're getting out of, out of uh, the VFF now is saying, well, we, we just don't want to pay that, so come back with something else. Well, sorry, but th- 
this is the amount that's agreed to be paid. So you can't just now say after the horse is out the gate, sorry, I don't want to do that anymore. So you're saying there's no negotiation there, you're not going to offer a cheaper membership price? Well, look, we're willing to talk to them about it. And obviously, as I've stated, we've, we've certainly got the value that we give to the Victorian dairy industry as Australia's peak dairy industry body over the benefits that, that, that they are receiving from that money. Like I said, $6 million in energy grants that Victoria got. So that's a fair swag of money for the amount that BFS actually pays us in, to actually achieve that. Look, let's move on to another issue now. We have Federal Ag Minister uh, Senator Murray Watt on the show later today. He's going to be talking about the details of how they'll phase out live sheep exports, which mainly affects Western Australia. But we still have about 100,000 head of dairy cattle being shipped out of Victoria. Are you at all concerned uh, about the live cattle industry and that it could be under threat in future? The Australian Live, I mean, I'm not really here to talk about that today, but the Australian Live Export Council, they're the ones who are dealing with this and, and certainly the sheep industry, so uh, I'll leave that ball in their court. So you're not worried at all? Um, you won't be joining the fight that they're um, undertaking to try and push back against the live sheep export ban? Oh, look, we see it as a, it's an issue. It'll be an issue for the dairy industry, So, uh, but we'll, we're sort of here to see how that plays out. They're leading the charge and... And uh, if we need to be part of it, we'll make that decision. Okay, another thing you're doing uh, later this week, I understand, flying to Europe, part of a, um, a tour uh, around certain issues in the ag industry, including the EU trade agreement. Will you be talking about geographical indicators that affects the use of names such as Feder and Parmesan while you're over there? Oh, too right. So, so the tour is basically is just to France, uh, organised by the NFF. Uh, they've invited me to come along. Uh, and as you'd be well aware, the dairy industry has been very vocal over the geographical indicator issue and the effects to the industry. And so obviously what I'm going for is to say, look, let's be, let's be fair and reasonable about, reasonable about this. Of uh, We're a multicultural country. We've got lots of Italians and Greeks, etc., that have come here bringing their heritage and traditions to Australia and producing these, these styles of cheeses. Um, you know, you just can't say they can't call it that anymore. There's an ulterior motive by the EU of what they're trying to do here. And let's, let's be fair on the size of the market here is that the EU sends 70,000 tonnes of product to Australia, which is predominantly cheese, a year, and we send last year 700 tonnes. So let's be fair. Let's be fair on what's going on. President of Australian Dairy Farmers, Rick Gladigo, all the best for your European trip and thanks for joining us on The Country Hour. Thank you very much for having me, Emma. President of Australian Dairy Farmers, Rick Gladigo, there. And I just want to clarify something. The United Dairy Farmers, which is part of the VFF, they paid $380,000 last year to the ADF. I think I said 350000 in the intro. Apologies about that. Um, and there are plenty of text messages coming through on this issue. Uh, you can text through 0467 8427 uh, We have UDV member levies have always been collected by VFF for UDV policy development, representation and to fund ADF to represent Victorian dairy farmers. This is what the members wanted. Withholding funds against members' will is unconscionable conduct. That has not been done, is my understanding, um, 
the VFF and the UDV have paid their membership. They're just asking for a conversation about the fees in the future, It's my understanding. Uh, Lisa from Yarram has also texted in. She said, I'm a dairy levy paying member of the UDV and pay VFF around $1,400 a year. I voted at the 2011 UDV conference to increase my levy to support representation of dairy at the national level. As a member, I expect the VFF board to honour the commitment they endorsed back in 2011. And another texter, Stephen, has sent uh, another text in about this issue. All other peak councils do as much work as the ADF and they receive $20,000 only, says Stephen. And another anonymous texter, be great if you can include your name on this, they say the VFF is siphoning off UDV income to save themselves. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. You are listening to The Country Hour. I'm Emma Field. It's 25 minutes past 12. I know it's about lunchtime for everyone out there. Me too, I suppose. But And maybe you're tucking into a salad roll. Well, it turns out the salad industry and other horticulture crops have grown a lot by $6 billion, in fact, in the past decade. Hort Innovation recently released their latest handbook with statistics covering 75 crops across fruit, vegetable, nuts and green life. The numbers show growth in both production values and volumes across the industry, despite many producers facing short-term challenges in recent times. Annie Brown spoke to Lucy Noble, the data and insights supply specialist for Hort Innovation. In terms of volume, when we look at the long term, it is a positive story and that is that the volume is increasing, increasing across the board. So those four categories of fruit, nuts, veg and amenity have all increased in volume rather consistently over the last 10 years. Volume, this latest reporting period, did come back for vegetables and that's no surprise given that supply has really been squeezed as a result of the flooding. Um, we're hearing obviously more recently about shortages in some of those key vegetable crops like potatoes and the full extent to that has not been realised yet so won't be necessarily fully reflected in this handbook. But we're seeing volume growth over all of our commodities some really impressive standouts are things like um, in almonds, where we've seen plantings 20 years ago were 6% of what they are today. So in terms of a reflection on looking at volume, we're seeing some really impressive growth in key, um, particularly export commodities, when we look at volume over the last 10 years. Yeah, and looking at the export stats there for Victoria in particular, almonds is the biggest thing that we, we export out of Victoria at the mm, moment. Absolutely, and I mean, in terms of pulling its weight, Victoria is responsible for producing 49% of fresh horticultural produce um, that's exported. So there is a lot of value coming out of um, Victoria in terms of a horticulture production value, particularly in those key export markets. Almonds are obviously a large player. It's no surprise that things like table grapes are there and then not far behind is a lot of those stone fruits as well. So the nectarines, plums, um, cherries, peaches as well. And to go back a little bit now to, to look at values and the growth that you've seen there in the last 10 years, what, what can you tell us about that and what's been happening there? Yeah, I mean, well, it's one thing to say that volumes come up, but if you don't see your value track, then we've obviously got to be an issue there. But thankfully, that's a story that we kind of don't have to deal with because there's been so much growth within our domestic channel, um, but also within that, those export markets. So if you look at the moment, we're, we're exporting around 11.5% of the volume of Australian produce um, to our international trade markets as well, which is really impressive because as, a, as an island nation, we're very much contained within our 
our markets. So we supply most, if not all, of our fresh produce. But what we're really seeing is the growth in the last 10 years has been particularly pushed by the, the growth in exports. It is important to note that the information in these statistics cover the last 10 years up until the 2001-2022 financial year, not including any of the weather events that have occurred in the last seven months. Michael Coote is the CEO of Ozveg, the peak industry body for the Australian vegetable and potato industries, and he says that while the long-term growth has been impressive, in the short term the industry has struggled against weather events, labour shortages and the high cost of production. Personally, I was quite surprised to see the vegetable category growing by 13% from $4.9 billion to $5.5 billion in production value for the, for the FY22 financial year. Um, I guess coming out of COVID, lots of people are still eating uh, fresh Aussie produce and needing staple vegetables. So that's probably driven some of that pricing, uh, that, that increase in industry value. Uh, however, the total value of the industry doesn't uh, always tell the whole story. Industry growth uh, at a macro level is one thing. However, our industry has been really struggling over the last, you know, 20, 12, 24 months with, uh, you know, weather events, higher production costs and labour shortages, uh, which, you know, you would think have uh, has seen a reduction in the, the volumes of fresh vegetables making it onto the market. Uh, but the higher uh, price doesn't necessarily reflect the total cost that a, that a grower incurs to grow and supply a product for Australian consumers. One um, particular crop in, that was pointed out in these the key findings in this it was about the leafy salad, salad vegetables, uh, which also reached new production volumes and increasing by 5% uh, just last year, marking the highest year of supply of fresh leafy salad vegetables. Um, can you tell me a bit about what's going on with yeah, leafy salad vegetables at the moment? Yeah, look, the, the industry has been growing and, and obviously grew by 5% in the last financial year, which is, uh, which is quite impressive given, um, given some of the challenges that sector's faced. Uh, I think that with food service coming back on um, after COVID um, as a category and a channel for growers to supply uh, probably has driven quite a bit of that increase. Um, exports are coming on in a small way, um, but a number of crops have, you know, have seen, you know, good, good uh, increases in that period. You know, the onion industry, um, grew to a new value of 249 million. Um, you know, our, our humble carrot exports, you know, in the last 10 years have grown from 51 million to 92 million, um, and, and continue to be the star performer for, for vegetable exports. So, Whilst we can also look at individual individual crops and how they're faring, um, it can be a mixed bag amongst the um, you know amongst different different vegetable products. The long term trend is growth. You know we've got population growth, we've got export export market growth. Uh, you know new new channels coming online all the time, which is really great. So it means there's markets that growers can play in, but we need to ensure that they remain viable and and, and primarily the domestic market, Australian consumers. Uh, where um, you know ninety percent of Australian vegetables are still consumed, so the, you know the focus for our growers is really on maintaining supply to to feed Australia uh, and, and 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 remaining profitable even in difficult years. Michael Coote, CEO of Ozveg, speaking there to Annie Brown about some of the star export products, carrots and onions, who knew? If you're a horticulture producer, you have any views about what's it, what it's been like in the last 10 years, love to hear your thoughts. You can text on 0467 842 You are listening to the Victorian Country Hour. We need to head to the newsroom now. Rio Davis joins us for news headlines.
Good afternoon, Emma. Making news around regional Victoria. Construction, forestry, mining and energy union representatives say more jobs could be lost if another machine is closed at the Maryvale paper mill in the Latrobe Valley. Union representatives say the operator Opal is strongly considering shutting the M2 machine, which processes both white and brown paper. CFMEU organiser at Maryvale, Anthony Pavey, says around another 40 jobs could be lost if the M2 machine is closed, after up to 150 were lost last month. Northern Victoria Opposition MP Wendy Lovell has accused the state government of hiding the latest data on wait lists for social housing. Ms Lovell says waiting list data for social housing is normally published quarterly, but the latest data currently available is from June last year. She says that data is now out of date, particularly in flood-affected communities. A state government spokesperson says wait times for social housing are dependent on a number of factors, including the number and types of properties available and demand in the area. Authorities have had a slippery morning cleaning up a large cream spill outside a milk factory in southwest Victoria. A Country Fire Authority spokesperson says five units were on scene to clean up the very slippery mess in Cobden, which caused some issues for traffic. The Environment Protection Authority has been notified about the incident, which occurred at half past five this morning. And a goanna has been rescued from a radio tower in Mildura after spending four days perched 20 metres above the regional city. An elaborate plan involving a snake catcher and crane operator had to be devised to retrieve the reptile. Witnesses have told the ABC the goanna did not take kindly to being rescued, but it was returned to solid ground uninjured. For more regional news at any time, you can visit www.abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, Rio. I love it. We've had camels and goannas on the Country Hour this afternoon. Let's head to the Weather Bureau now, though. Matthew Thomas, Senior Forecaster with the Bureau of Meteorologists, joins us this afternoon. Good afternoon, Matthew. Hello. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. What have we got uh, weather-wise over the next few days? OK, um, look, we're Today, currently, we've got um, cloudy conditions just continuing about um, parts of the, the south, um, beginning to clear up about um, inland parts of the, the southwest. But um, the stream has tended a little bit more southeasterly, but it's still a fairly um, cool um, day um, over the southern parts of the state, a little bit more mild about um, about northern um, parts where it's, at the moment it's um, it's mostly sunny. Um, but we have seen a, a little bit of drizzle about the south that should ease back into the um, the afternoon. The clouds should begin to um, to clear into the afternoon. A ridge of high pressure pushing um, to the south of Victoria and moving over Tasmania. As that um, ridge of high pressure moves um, over Victoria and out to the east into Saturday morning. We'll see the, the stream warm up as it tends more um, northeasterly um, into Saturday. Um, the trough will form over over Victoria, um, about um, um, central parts of Victoria, and that will see some isolated showers and thunderstorms develop tomorrow um, about the east. Um, we're not expecting to see a great deal of um, rainfall out of those um, showers. I think um, we've probably only see a couple of millimetres um, for, for most locations, um, but um, we might see um, some higher amounts um, in the thunderstorms, um, sort of the, the five to, to ten millimetres um, out of the, the storms. Um, and then into Sunday, those isolated showers and storms will continue about the, um, about the east 
um, through Sunday. Um, we might see just a little bit more in terms of um, precipitation out of the, the storms, um, the isolated storms on Sunday. Um, but the stream will tend more northerly um, and warm up um, even further. So on Saturday, we're looking at temperatures um, generally around the um, sort of the, the high 20s into the, the low 30s. Um, but we're looking through um, through um, Sunday with the temperatures about um, the north of the state getting up into the, the mid to high um, 30s. Um, I think 37 is so the current forecast for Mildura um, that we're expecting. So, so it's very much above average um, temperatures for March, um, and that will drive um, fire danger as well. Um, so we are looking at um, high fire dangers for um, northern um, parts of the, the state and also for the, the southwest and the, the central um, district as well. Um, into um, Sunday, we'll see a cold front approach from the, the west. So those isolated showers and storms continuing about the east through the, the day, but um, as that cold front approaches from the west, we'll see um, scattered showers develop about the, the southwest um, and extend to remaining um, western districts um, during the afternoon and then to central districts into the evening. Um, we're looking at around, um, you know, up to 10 millimetres um, with those um, with those showers, um, particularly about the, the southwest coast. Um, but um, the wind's tending fairly westerly as the, the change moves through um, the western um, parts of the state into the evening. Now that front will then cross um, the remainder of Victoria on um, the central and eastern parts um, on um, Monday morning and, um, and the precipitation on Monday is going to be very much confined to um, the, the morning for most locations. So we'll see um, those scattered showers mainly about central and eastern parts um, um, and isolated thunderstorms about um, eastern districts um, ease um, through the, the morning and contract really back to the, um, the coast or the, the ranges and we'll just see some isolated um, showers into the, um, the afternoon about those locations. So any, um, then, any forecast on uh, how much rain will fall on Monday in those locations? Look, I think we're, we're looking at, um, look, 5 to, to 15 millimetres um, will probably be the, the range um, through um, Sunday into Monday as the, the front does cross. So um, not sort of so much looking at each particular day um, with the front um, entering the, um, the, the west of the state on Sunday. Um, they'll see, you know, a significant part of that rainfall on Sunday and then a, a little bit more into Monday, um, but, but around the 5 to 15 millimetres. But around um, the north of the state, the amounts are probably going to be more the, the 1 to 5 millimetres. I think we might struggle to see terribly much um, push through um, to the, um, the far northwest around Mildura. Now, uh, I'm going up to the mountain calf sales next week on Tuesday, Wednesday. We're going to be broadcasting for the country hour up there. Any, uh, any forecasts yet on what we can expect? Are we, going to, are we getting a hot baking day or, or a cool one, do you know? No, we're going to see a second cold front go through on um, Tuesday and that will see um, some more showers um, about on Tuesday, mainly on and south of the, the ranges. Um, but that will then bring a southwesterly stream into um, to Wednesday. So there will be some showers about, um, and it will be a, a cooler day. We will see um, even the, some flurries of snow about the highest peaks. So, you know, Mount Hotham and the like might well see the, 
um, the snow, unlikely to see it in Omeo, but a cooler day um, with some um, with some scattered showers likely, um, particularly on and south of the ranges um, through um, through Wednesday, Thursday, easing back um, into Friday. Right, so I might have to take the uh, beanie for that little trip up to the high country next week. Matthew Thomas, Senior Forecaster from the Bureau, thanks very much. No worries, have a great day. Matthew Thomas from the Bureau there giving us the latest on uh, coming weather. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. Emma Field with you this afternoon, uh, taking you through till one o'clock. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Australia's Agriculture Minister says the government is committed to ending live sheep exports. Last year, the trade exclusively from WA was worth $85 million. Today, Senator Murray Watt will appoint an independent panel to advise the government about how and when it will ban the live sheep trade. Uh, Yeah, well, today I'm going to be announcing in Perth uh, the next stage of us implementing the Albanese government's commitment to phase out the export of live sheep by sea. Uh, This was obviously an election commitment that we made, and in fact, we've actually taken it to the last two elections. Uh, And what we're announcing today is a four-person panel who will undertake a consultation process over about six months um, to work out how and when we should implement this commitment Um, There's obviously a lot of views in the community about how we should implement this commitment over what kind of time frame, and that's exactly what this uh, panel will now be working on. Uh, We've come up with a really good cross-section of skills, including representation from WA, from agriculture, from the public sector and from animal welfare to make sure that all views are heard about how and when we should implement this commitment. Who do you expect this committee to, this panel to consult with? I'd expect this consultation to be very broad ranging. Uh, We do want to make sure in particular that people in Western Australia have a strong say on this because of course Western Australia is the only state that is exporting live sheep by sea at the moment. Uh, But I intend this consultation to be nationwide uh, and include everyone from farmers to processors to exporters to people concerned about animal welfare. Um, We really want to make sure that we get a good cross-section of views about how and when we should implement this commitment. Industry seems quite united in appealing the ban, saying it's a red line issue and that all livestock or all animal industries should be concerned about the precedent this sets. Have they got a chance in overturning the ban? Um, I can understand uh, the concerns of industry and this is a big change and that's why we've already committed that we would do it in an orderly way. Uh, Both the Prime Minister and I have made clear that we won't be implementing this commitment by the end of this term of government because we know that it will take time for the industry to adjust. Uh, But the consultation will not be looking into whether we should do this. We did make that election commitment. We were elected to government and now it's important that we carry out that commitment. But we're very open to hearing from people about how and when we should do this commitment. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt speaking with Kath Sullivan. And the ABC can confirm that panel includes former RSPCA boss Heather Neal, former Northern Territory MP Warren Snowden, WA farmer Sue Middleton and the former head of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, Phil Glide. 
Sticking with that issue, the Australian Livestock Exporters Council say they will fight the federal government's policy to end the live sheep trade because it sets an alarming precedent for all agricultural industries. Mark Harvey Sutton is the council's CEO. He says the policy on the live sheep trade must change before another ag industry finds itself on the chopping block. The minister has a commitment to carry out and uh, we've made it very clear to him that Despite that commitment that he has uh, and the, the decision of Labor to carry forward this policy, we will be fighting against this policy. Uh, and the reason I say there's light at the end of the tunnel is because we have the facts on our side, Belinda. There is no livestock industry, and I'm not meaning to gild the lily here, but there is no livestock industry in Australia or other agricultural industries that has had not had some form of social licence challenge. However... What industries must do is address those challenges in order to retain that social licence. Our industry has done that. Okay, so is legal action against the federal government a possibility? Look, we're not ruling out any option. As I've said, we will fight this policy all the way. To follow through with the policy like this sends a signal to all agricultural industries that you can do absolutely everything that is asked of you. You can reform You can become the best in the world, but we will still shut you down because it's politically expedient to do so. And that's what troubles me. And no, I'm not deterred because we we will engage with that consultation process meaningfully. But the one thing that we will not be contemplating is a discussion about transition. And we will be utilizing that consultation process to explain why this policy is wrong and why it's wrong for all of agriculture. Mark Harvey Sutton, the CEO of Australian Livestock Exporters Council, talking there with Belinda Varischetti. We have already received a couple of text messages on this particular topic. You can tell us what you think, 0467 842 722. All what is, or Senator Watt, I think they're to, all Senator Watt is worried about is the Gold Coast Green vote, says Tom on the text line. And then somebody else has written, I'd like to ask Murray Watt, what, Once the government destroys the live sheep exports, will they be happy to see a return to the situation of the 1980s where hundreds of thousands of sheep were shot and put down in pits? And that's from Chris. That was a very unfortunate time. I particularly remember that one myself. Um, Emma Field with you on the Victorian Country Hour this afternoon. Moving on to another pretty contentious topic, I think you'd say. It's been pretty well known that finding staff has been a bit of an issue for the ag sector. Well, Sally Murphy is a human resources specialist and her business Inspire Ag works with farm businesses to build better relationships between farm owners and their staff. And she says understanding what millennial workers, that's people aged between in their mid-20s to the age of 40, want from a job can be the key to keeping good staff. So labour availability has been a really long-standing issue for Australian agriculture, um, in fairness. You have to say that up front, I think. But essentially, uh, what I showed the group today was that um, a graph from agricultural appointments which indicated the number of candidates in the market at any given time in comparison to the number of jobs that were advertised on seek.com.au, for example. And it was 
it was a period of time from July 2013 through to July 2021 and when you started in July 13 the gap was really close together there was an even supply of candidates and jobs but as you move along that timeline and get to July 2021 the gap is just really significantly widened it's like a big crocodile mouth at that point in time there was 425 jobs available in the marketplace and only about 100 candidates so I think it'll be really interesting when that, um, that, that data comes out to update the 2023 report to see where we sit with that. And what are those main things to attract candidates? So a lot of people think that money is the deciding factor, but one of the, one of the data points that I showed in my presentation was that money is not in fact one of the driving reasons. Culture is actually 10.4 times more likely for um, that reason that people will leave your business r rather than money. So that's a pretty, you know, that's to me, that's a really significant metric to look at and go, well, if, if, it's, if it's not money, what else is it? Is flexibility, person require, you know, individuals to perform well require certainty in their future. They like autonomy in what they're doing. Um, they like to relate with their team and uh, have the decisions been handled in a fair way. Uh, and everybody being treated fairly. Is that including for millennials? Yeah, so um, that, that is specifically for millennials. Um, you know, if you look specifically at uh, the millennials, they're, they're something like 26% of our population here in Australia, but they're 50% of our workforce pool. So we need to do a lot more as an industry to understand millennials, how they operate, what motivates them, because you know, the average millennial will stay in a role for about two and a half years. They'll have five different career changes in that time and potentially 17 different employers. So that old nugget of a job for life is just something that's not ringing true anymore. Sally Murphitt there. She's the CEO of Inspire Ag, speaking with reporter Sarah Price. Speaking of millennial, let's go to the other end of the scale. Uh, it's long been reported that the average age of Australian farmers is on the rise. The latest data is no different. It shows the average age of farm managers is now above 63. Michael Whitehead from ANZ Bank says Australian ag hasn't become a retirement village and a closer look at the data shows some really positive stories. Uh, this graph is probably a good sign, actually. Ten years ago, the average age of farmers was around 53, 54. And we thought that was a bad thing and we worried about running out of skills. Now we see this graph showing things at about 64. And what we see is the farmers who are doing this, by and large, are enthusiastic about what they're doing. Uh, they're in, by and large, in good health. They're the ones who've probably built up their operations, consolidated, um, excited about what they're doing. And in a lot of cases, they're part of two generations who are increasingly on a farm as the family farm uh, grows more than we thought it would. So do you think as succession plans kick in on farms around the nation, we'll see uh, that graph, those numbers change? Look, we might. And this is probably in a way delayed the great succession in Australian ag uh, because those farmers, they're very fit now, but they're not going to do that forever. So in 10 to 15 years, a lot of them will retire to the sea or be off their farms. But then the way agriculture is going, we may well see the generation after the current younger one coming through again. And Michael, does this data take into account a lot of retirees who, who buy a small block, run a few cattle and sort of live out their days there? 
You are absolutely right. This data is not perfect. This data does include all farms and there will be a lot of small ones in there. This data also, and talking to our good friends at ABARES who've pulled it together, includes the person who sat down and filled in the farm survey. Um, so, so it's definitely there. So it's not perfect data, but you go to any grains conference, beef conference, any farmer gathering and look around and you think to yourself, yep, this is pretty close to the truth. Well, you've shown this graph and this data to a lot of grain growers this week. What has the feedback been like? Uh, the feedback's been absolutely positive. Uh, at the West Australian Grains Conference, a room of 600 people nodding in agreement that, uh, yes, that average age has gone up, but also, yes, it's a positive. Uh, and who wouldn't be enthusiastic about being in grain or so many of the other industries at the moment? Can I get you to elaborate a bit more on why you think the average age going up is a positive thing? Uh, yeah, because it's a it's part of the change we've seen in ag over the last 10 years. Yes, the number of farms has gone down uh, largely because they've consolidated. The people who didn't want to be in it anymore have uh, probably sold out, sold to their neighbours, and their neighbours who've bought and stayed and grown and are, who are still passionate about sheep or cattle or grain or whatever industry they're in, um, are fitter than people used to be and are enthusiastically building up their operations. And also, as we say, um, more than ever, for a number of reasons, their kids are joining them on the farm. They're bringing back their, their city education in finance, in agriculture, and they're also benefiting from the growth in regional towns. And as the attractiveness about building to the region grows for kids and their partners, that helps build up these family operations. Michael Whitehead, who is the head of Agribusiness Insights at the ANZ, speaking with Matt Bran there. Well, from older farmers to very, very young agricultural workers, let's hear from a young dog working dog trainer. When 53 dogs went up for sale at the annual Derildi Working Dog Auction on the weekend, among the vendors was an was eight-year-old Tommy Lee from Edenhope. Son of well-known dog trainers David and Sally Lee, Tommy raised and trained a Kelpie called Echo, who sold to a Mount Gambier farmer for $5,000. Angus Verley spoke with Tommy about his dog Echo. He's very natural. He's pretty good on his dog. Quiet too. And that's all. Where did you get him from? We bred him by my um, dog called Jazz. I, I do trials with Jazz. What does he look like? Um, he has a very skinny head and he's tan and black. Has he been very easy to train? Yep, he has. So when he's doing rings around the sheep, I'd stop him from keep doing rings around it so he just stays behind the sheep. Now, as you've been training him, Tommy, did you always know that the day was going to come where he'd be put up for auction? Yes. How did you feel about that? Were you, were you sad to think that you'd have to say goodbye to him one day? Yeah, but not really, because we saw him to a friend, his name is Jimmy, and he, he bought him, and we know him. 
And he was sold at the Gerildry Working Dog auction at the weekend? Yep. How did the auction go? Um, good. I was very nervous. There's more people than I'd expect at a dog trial. There's loads there. Can you tell me how much he was sold for? Um, 5000 What's going to happen to the money, Tommy? Um, we have one ton of you and we want to get it. I want to get it fixed. So we have another car and want to spend it on that. Probably do burnouts in the paddocks. Okay, so have you still got Echo or have you already said goodbye to him? Uh, we still have him. It's not far. We just need to drop him at Mel Gambia because the, um, because Jimmy has a place in New South Wales and Mount Gambia. Uh, and do you know what sort of work he's going to be doing? Is he going to be working with sheep or cattle or both? Um, goats and I think sheep too. Tommy, tell me how you first got involved with training dogs because most eight-year-olds are doing other things. They're not out training working dogs. Um, because my parents trained dogs and... I wanted to have a go trying to train one. So, Tommy, tell me when you're training, when you were training Echo or, or training other dogs, what sorts of things do you do with the dog and with the sheep or the goats? We usually get a call for them when they're pups. And then when they get older, we start, when they're doing rings around the sheep, we stop them from doing that. And then when they're older... We'll teach them, however you would say it, um, which way to go around to sheep and back and bark. And just explain what that, what that means, back and bark. They go up the sheep, they hop on the top of the sheep, they go at the back and then they start barking. Do you know, what do you think, Tommy, makes a good dog trainer? Do, do you have to be patient and make sure that you don't get angry or frustrated? Yeah, I'd say don't get too angry at them because then they probably won't um, listen to you. What about now that you've sold Echo, Tommy? Are you, are you training other dogs or have, are you going to do some more training? Mm, maybe do a bit more training on his brother, Charlie. What do you love about training dogs? That you get money and they're real playful when they're puppies. When they're older, you can do things like if you're going to go get some sheep and so you can shear them and you need a dog, you, can, you should go out in the paddock with your dog and go get the sheep. That was eight-year-old dog trainer Tommy Lee from Eden Hope speaking about uh, his dog Echo. He was speaking to Angus Fairley. What a cute little voice. I'm, I'm going to take some of his tips for my training my dog, Swirly, the Border Collie. You are uh, listening to the Country Hour. We're just about to wrap up, but just a couple of texts on a couple of the issues that were raised today on live sheep exports, which the Labor government will end. They're talking about a transition process. This texture has said, any industry based on cruelty is not sustainable. Democracy will prevail at the next election, says Harry. And on the topic of the Australian 
and dairy farmers and whether the VFF should keep paying their fees. Uh, this texter says ADF is stuck in the 1980s uh, with an out-of-date constitution, no uh, vision or adequate strategic plan, says Farmer Joe. That's it. It's time for news. It's one